The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So welcome, welcome to Common Ground. My name is Mira Young, and I may be familiar to some of you, and uh, who's this odd stranger to others? So um, I've been a longtime member of the community here, um, and practicing for some decades, along with all of you. And uh, um, I teach in the community meditation um, in various settings. I'm an adjunct faculty. I'm also a psychotherapist in private practice and at the Center for Grief and Loss, where I I practice um, integrating the teachings of Buddhist psychology and mindfulness and body awareness and into um, you know, being present with human suffering, mine and others. So I'm very blessed and grateful to, um, um, you know, have the Dharma in my life, and hopefully whatever I can share can be of support, and, um, and whatever isn't helpful, or throw it in the garbage can. So tonight's talk is um, a receptive heart, paradoxes on the path. And I'd like to start with a poem and a quote. So this one is called Forget About Enlightenment. Sit down wherever you are and listen to the wind singing in your veins. Feel the love, the longing, the fear in your bones. Open your heart to who you are right now. Not who you'd like to be. Not the saint that you are striving to become. But the being right here before you, inside you, around you. All of you is holy. You are already more or less than whatever you can know. Breathe out. Touch in. Let go. John Walwood. This is a quote that um, Jack Cornfield has in his book, A Path with Heart. So we have the receptive heart and now the paradox. It is a basic principle of spiritual life that we learn the deepest things in unknown territory. Often it is when we feel most confused inwardly and are in the midst of our greatest difficulties that something new will open. We awaken most easily to the mystery of life through our weakest side, the areas of our great strength where we are most competent and clearest tend to keep us away from the mystery. To go into this territory beyond our own self, to enter into these realms with a guide, can be like trying to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. And he talks about finding, you know, the communities, the teacher, the teachings that can help to guide us during these times. So we're very fortunate to have a community and teachings as these in our lives and and others that you may have as guides. Um, 
So I was um, actually sitting in this room on Wednesday. Um, I, I um, sometimes fill in and lead the Qigong on Wednesday mornings. And I, as since Mark is um, on retreat and one of the other teachers is out of town, I was sitting here. Um, it gets me here. And I was practicing before the class. And uh, all of a sudden I was sitting there and I, I was thinking I... Um, it popped into my mind that uh, the title, A Receptive Heart. And I realized that, that that's what I have been um, experiencing, um, especially of late. I had an opportunity um, to go on retreat for several weeks in a beautiful place. Um, some of you may have an opportunity to go there at some point. There's a Dharma forest um, hermitage in on Maui that one of our longtime teachers, one of my guides, Kamala Masters, and also Steve Armstrong founded on Maui up in the mountainous area. So it wasn't at the beach, but it was green and there were butterflies. And um, I uh, was there during the most frozen time of all that was here, and I was sending loving kindness and sunshine. (laughs) Um, And very grateful. But what happened on that retreat, as often happens on retreats, is that the unexpected occurs. And uh, so here I am in this wonderful conditions. I have a cottage, which is like the Taj Mahal on the land because um, the other Kutis are very nice, and they're newly built, and, and this has been like a 20-year project. And, but I had, um, they, have, they don't have a lot of the conveniences, and I had a cottage, which I had asked for and practiced in previous times, with a, had a heater that I could turn on because it gets down to 40 sometimes or 50 in the evening, and, you know, a refrigerator and my own tea kettle, and all of that kind of thing, and a, and a wonderful porch with rocking chair, or a nice chair. So um, I get there, and the day after I arrive, the flu, the, not just the flu, the flu, the major knockdown, drag-out flu. How many people have had some that this season, or no, or, or some version of it? It completely laid me out. I mean, just like a week. Just, hello, you're in paradise. You want to be on retreat? Boom. I mean, it was all I could do um, to, um, I'd go to the Dharma Hall. I tried to sit. I was hacking. I tried to move my, my cushion away. There was just a few other, two other yogis, and then Kamala sat with us a lot, and they said, no, it's fine if you come. And I... I would sit in the morning in the Buddha barn they have, and then in the evening. And uh, but mainly, I'd be in my bed, and uh, I would try to walk a little bit and practice. Um, but mainly, I was um, having to surrender completely, and uh, my energy. I'd feel like I was getting a little better, and then it was just out. So, long story short, not to complain about that, it was just that the flu had, had um, took me into that unknown territory of um, having to let go because there's nothing else I could do. I was just very sick. And all I could do is know that it would pass at some point. 
And then I realized as I started to recover, and I was sitting on the um, deck one day early on, that this retreat was not for me so much about striving, practicing, you know. It was just about being receptive. And as soon as I got that message, it's like, okay, so what's happening here? Is like I just relaxed and I just was receptive. I said it's about being nourished and being receptive. And, um, and then um, I, it just changed. And I felt like I could start to sit, and I had the support of others, and I could sit deeply, and I could take a chair, and I could sit on the top of a hill where the butterflies were in the sky, and I could look at the sky, and I could just be. And it became a, a, a retreat of more being and receptivity than of doing and practicing in some of the ways that I have um, learn to do. So does that make sense? So it was this paradox of deep practice, but it felt like absolutely nothing that I was doing or, or that anything particular was happening. So this is um, a little poem one day when I got a lesson from a butterfly. I was sitting on that porch The saffron-colored butterfly alights, then takes her sweet time sipping nectar, as though she has become a part of the orange flower. So still, barely moving, I cannot trust my eyes. Is she still there? Slowly at her meal, I must leave my window on her world for my meditation seat. Can I balance one pointed from the tongue of my attention, sipping moments like her without wavering? Shunru Suzuki Roshi says, and this is a famous quote, you should not lose yourself sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In an expert's mind, there are few. Remaining open and receptive in our lives, greeting mindfully everything that comes into them, is an acknowledgement, explicitly explicitly or implicitly, that we are situated in a landscape of constant change, a change that may bring in large measure beyond our control, a change we may well want to resist or avoid, but a change nevertheless that is seeking our attention. So we're going to cover some different terrain here tonight, and... uh, I'd like to quote Black Elk. Perhaps this is on Hearing the Cries of the World by Mark Nepo. He quotes Black Elk. Perhaps the most important reason for lamenting is it helps us to realize our oneness with all things and to know that all things 
are our relatives. And Abraham Heschel says, a saint is one who does not know how it is possible not to love, not to help, not to be sensitive to the anxiety of others. So I want to touch into what's been most recently breaking all of our hearts is that shooting that happened in Florida. Um, And this recognition of such violence and access to weapons and just the level of vulnerability that we're living at these times. And this is just one of many, many experiences. And I thought, I cannot come here and talk tonight without weaving in, you know, we're so vulnerable. And our receptive heart is also feels the suffering, this lamenting. And the heart wants to shut down or uh, scream or cry. And um, I had an opportunity just um, this today to sit with a circle of some of my Dharma sisters. And we started off our time together after we sat in meditation and started to talk about how are we being? How is this impacting and affecting us? Because it was all on our hearts. And that out of this horror, after so many incidences, um, it feels like there's some kind of a groundswell happening and some sanity. And the young people are leading it. The young people. And uh, so... I think that that change can come from really um, opening, feeling the pain in the heart and how it affects us all. So I don't have any answers or anything super wise to say about it other than I wanted to acknowledge it. And hopefully some of what what we share tonight will also be of support. Um, But I know that I was heartened to feel the care and the compassion and the wisdom with other people, because there's a lot of good people in the world, and we're, we're some of them, right? And we're, we're not going to just go along with this kind of violence. Um, so um, this is a story about Kuan Yin, And uh, forgive me if I've shared it before. Kuan Yin is a goddess of compassion. And uh, this is how she began to open to the violence that she saw and witnessed. Kuan was before Kuan Yin, Kuan. Without her knowing, she began to hold the broken that would fill eternity long before they would suffer, the stillborn, the betrayed, the sickly, the murdered, the thousands left to mourn. Letting them move through her began to open her heart like a lotus flower, and the cries of the world, though she couldn't name a one, made her stronger. They made her stronger. And while she slept, Juan became a source of healing. And when she woke, she spent her days touching the wounded and holding the dying and keeping the cries of the world alive. The cries became a song she didn't understand, other than to know that as the wind can lift, 
the snow off a branch, the cries all together can somehow lift the sadness of a broken heart. We'll never know, but like rivers joining in the sea, our stories coalesce and merge over time into one story that remains the one we wake up to, surprised it is ours. And this is the Bodhisattva paradox. The Bodhisattva, the Kuan Yin, the the compassion within us, is an advanced Buddhist who turns away from trying to achieve her own enlightenment and works on behalf of all who suffer. Sentient beings are numerous. I bow to save them all. And this is based on compassion of she or he or they who hear the cries of the world. But wouldn't such openness to massive suffering lead to desires and aversions or numbness? Only by remaining content can one remain open to the suffering of others. And therefore, true compassion also involves contentment or peace. So this is a poem by Jane Hirschfield. The monk stood beside the wheelbarrow. The monk stood beside a wheelbarrow weeping. God or Buddha, nowhere to be seen. These tears are fully human, bitter, broken, falling into the wheelbarrow's rusty side. They gathered at its bottom, where the metal drank them in to make them make more rust. You cannot know what to do in this life, What you have done, the monk stood weeping. I knew I also had a place on earth. Some things can surprise you in both directions, coming and going. So when I read that poem, at first I didn't understand it. But then I realized, you know, we're all in this together. And, and we don't know. We don't know if maybe that kind word, you know, or that, that way of sitting with someone in their sorrow or um, laughing with a friend. You know, we don't know all the myriad of ways that we may impact and be a source of compassion and wisdom for others. And I think this is that lesson of the receptive heart that I realized when I stopped um, when I was able to let go and just receive the blessings that were right there before me instead of thinking I had to do something um, in order to receive them, something radically shifted in my heart. And and I felt like like the Dharma, you know, it's it's not that we don't make the effort. And I, I know some of you may be on various stages in the journey, and I'm continuing to be a feel like a beginner, like I, I feel like that the older I get and the more I practice, the less I know, and I'm grateful for that, because it keeps it open. And, uh, but that, that we can really um, receive. We don't, we don't have to, like, whip ourselves with, with a, a whip and, you know, and, and berate ourselves. I was actually feeling like a lazy yogi. It's like, what am I doing? Here I'm on retreat. I, yeah, I had the flu. Okay, but now come on, get to work. 
And it was like, am I being lazy? Am I really practicing here? And when I realized, you know, what the butterfly and the, the trees and the, the, what was happening, I was just like relieved. And then I could just practice and trust the process and let go. And sometimes I practice formally, sometimes informally, and both. So I think that's the paradox about letting go. Um, we have all these ideas, all these ideas of what it should look like and how it should be. And sometimes there's a time where we practice very um, you know, diligently. But it's like anything else. You know, it's a balance, right? It's a balance. So I, if you'll excuse me, I, I'm going to be ridiculous here. So what is a paradox? This is from Gilbert and Sullivan, The Pirates of Penzance. A paradox. You can say it with me if you know it. A paradox, a most ingenious paradox. We've quips and quibbles, herds and flocks, but none to beat this paradox. A paradox, a paradox, a most ingenious paradox. So it's got, go with me. Ha ha, ha ha, come on. Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha, ha ha. This is a paradox. Can we laugh? You know, can we see the paradoxes in life? That here, even in the midst of the suffering, we can laugh, we can breathe, we can see the butterfly. You know, can we, can we recognize, you know, the Buddha, I have a quote from the Buddha here himself about, about the paradox. It's just, um, the Buddha said, actually, to meditate is to listen with a receptive heart. That's a quote from the Buddha. If it's true or not, I don't know, but that's the quote. To meditate is to listen with a receptive heart. This is a paradox of noise by Gunilla Norris. It is a paradox that we encounter so much internal noise when we first try to sit in silence. It is a paradox that experiencing pain releases pain. It is a paradox that keeps... The keeping still can lead us so fully into life and being. Our minds do not like paradoxes. We want to be clear so we can maintain our illusions of safety. Certain breeds, certain breeds tremendous certainty breeds tremendous smugness. We each possess a deeper level of being, however, which loves paradox. Take a moment with that. We each possess a deeper level of being, however, which loves paradox. It knows that in summer is already growing like a seed in the depth of winter. All of us here in Minnesota, under the earth, you know, those bulbs are under there. The seed is, there's life underneath, growing like a seed in the depth of winter. It knows that the moment we're born, we begin to die. It knows that all of life shimmers in the shades of becoming. The shadow and the light are always together. The visible mingled with the invisible. When we sit in stillness, we are profoundly active. Keeping silent, we hear the roar of existence. Through our willingness to be one, we are. We become one with everything. 
Gunilla Norris. Ready for more paradoxes? We're going to get into Zen koans too. Buddhism is full of paradoxes, and many of them are germane to Japanese nature writing. So, if the goal of Buddhism is to have no desires, how does one act? Would one starve? This is um, one approach, free spontaneity. An enlightened Buddhist acts on her true nature, or their true nature, which responds spontaneously to changing circumstances. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're tired, you sleep. So having a receptive heart, being open to the paradox, it's like you're, you're recognizing. Is there hunger? Fortunately, if we're fortunate, we have food we can eat. By this, so it comes into our actions and into our emotions. Can we be, there's a free flow tradition. You know, the question about emotions is, what happens to emotions in enlightenment? Are emotions a result of desire and disease? Is an enlightened Buddhist devoid of all emotions? This is one tradition. The dispassion tradition says emotions are a result of attachment. The goal is to have no desires. The free flow tradition says emotions themselves are not the problem. The problem is that we have desires and aversions to our emotions. If we don't resist and hold on to them, If we become one with them, they flow naturally through us. This does not disturb enlightenment. This is true for some emotions, joy, sorrow. Is it true for some but not others? Because by nature they signify emotions, desires, aversions. The point is that you can have emotions and remain content and tranquil. Is that true? I mean, I kind of go with that... uh, free flow tradition. I mean, it's, there's nothing that's a problem. Everything about our human experience is, is grounds for awakening. So then Buddhist koans. Let's see if we'll test you on some of these here. Um, so koans, Zen koans, and I've never formally done Zen koans. I've witnessed it, but I've never done it. I don't know if some people here are Zen practitioners, but I did go, um, I I have heard them quite a bit. And actually there was a yoga teacher many years ago that worked a lot with Zen students, and their postures were very, very straight, but a lot of the yoga, the Zen people with those super straight postures were really tight. And so they brought in a yoga teacher, and she asked them a, a very deep koan, what is the sound of one hamstring stretching? <laughs> so, very simply, koan contemplation means that even though the words can never fully express the gut-level understanding, the koans are pointing away to students that need to be able to articulate it in some way. It takes that encounter with the absolute and grounds it back into the relative. There's always the two dancing together to develop insight. What's that? A paradox, a paradox, a paradox. We have the relative and the absolute levels of reality. Okay? A lot of us shame ourselves because we can't live at the absolute level. We're always dancing between the two 
moment to moment. So there's a Tao Te Ching, I may be pronouncing that wrong, that arrests the reader's mind and throws it off its familiar tracks of logical reasoning. Cones are carefully devised nonsensical riddles which are meant to take the student to realize the limitations of logic and reasoning in the most dramatic way. The irrational wording and the paradoxical content of these riddles make it impossible to solve them by thinking. They're designed precisely to stop the process, the thought process, and make the student ready for nonverbal reality. Okay. So, has a dog Buddha nature or not? (laughs) I'm not going to answer these. (laughs) Okay. So, um, What was the original face? What was your original face, the one you had before your parents gave you birth? You can make the sound of two hands clapping. Now, what is the sound of one hand clapping? The solving of a koan demands a supreme effort of concentration and involvement from the student. The koan grips the student's heart and mind and creates a true mental impasse, a state of sustained tension in which the whole world becomes an enormous mass of doubt and confusion. (laughs) Often after a prolonged, exhausting intellectual struggle, the student realizes the koan is actually meant to be understood by spirit and intuition. How many of us feel like life is a koan? <laughs> that our lives, you know, it's like, how do we make sense of what is going on? And I think what helps me the most is that rather than rail against it, that the receptive heart is not a stupid heart. It's a heart that, that can handle the ambiguity of the relative and the absolute. It's like, this is how it is right now. Like there's an equanimity, like why is the world like it? Why is it so unjust? Why are human beings so insane? How can we keep repeating history over and over and over again? I want to figure it out. The mind just cannot tolerate this inconsistency. It's like wake up people. And it's like, okay, this is how it is. And then it's like how do I, we begin to wake up and be with the paradox and then respond to it with wisdom and compassion. Otherwise, we're hooked and we're reactive and we're just creating the same old thing. And don't ask me any answers. I'm going to throw this out to you guys. Um, I hopefully will leave time for discussion. Um, but I do know that, that being able to find ways to expand the capacity to tolerate these paradoxes and ambiguity is really, really helpful. And as a therapist, um, you know, the why me question comes a lot, particularly with some of the tragic stories of grief and loss. I mean, it's just like, I'm not, um, well, I am from a Judeo background. I'm not a Christian, but in any case, it's Old Testament. Sometimes I've said a comment to a client who's just told me something awful, and, and I just listen. Sometimes I have tears in my eyes. And I put my hand on my heart. And then every now and then I'll hear this voice come out of me and say, 
Yeah, it's like you're in the belly of the whale. <laughs> it's like, oh God. You know, it's like, why me? You know, and, and I don't know, but I know that's not the right question to ask. It's like more like, why not me? I mean, this is how it is. Shit happens. Human life, um, it's not fair. You know, some people, it's like, well, I thought I had my quotient of loss. I lost my father. I lost my mother. I lost my brother. You know, how come now I have this illness? Or how come my partner? You know, it's like, I don't know. And other people seem to ice dance through life, right? But I don't know if that's really true. So this is... um, there's a lot to cover here. I believe me, I cut back. I had enough for three Dharma talks, but um, so how about another poem, and then we'll talk a little bit about some change, things about change, and we'll wind up so we, I can, you can share your wisdom and compassion. This is um, by David White from the House of Belonging, <coughs> working together. We shape ourselves to fit this world, and by the world are shaped again, the visible and the invisible working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the intangible air passed at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust those elements we have yet to see or imagine and look for the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. Thank you, David. So this is a a teaching about consciousness. And I'm not sure if it quite goes, but let's see if it does. And if it doesn't... um, it's okay if you don't, don't like it. Um, <laughs> so on this retreat, when I did just kind of trust this receptive heart, it was amazing also like each evening, like I'd have my little routine, which included formal and informal practice and, you know, kind of sitting on the, the porch and, and sit, sitting on the hill and, and having the meal And I also um, did um, a little bit of writing, a short journal or a poem. And and then in the evening, after the last sit, where I sat with a couple other yogis who happened to be there, and boy, were they strong sitters. It was really great. Um, I um, would come back to my cottage, sometimes 8.30, maybe, was it 9, 9.30 at night, and I'd listen to a Dharma talk. And because um, I was uh, using a hotspot on a phone and my computer, I, I, and the reception, some things came in and some things didn't, some things would take like forever to download, I was just like forced again to shop around for Dharma talks. And I got on different websites and different talks. But one of them, and one was actually by um, Jane Hirschfield, who has a wonderful Dharma talk on the Upaya website where I found these poems, some poems from her, um, about poetry and the Dharma that's really beautiful. And she's also an environmental activist and has written about the environment. Super cool. 
And one of the talks that actually did get off a Dharma seed that actually worked was by Joseph Goldstein. So Joseph, um, I found his talk about consciousness and the self really compelling. And he talked about the knowing mind, like what is consciousness? And a lot of us, you know, this is again this paradox um, that, that we identify with our consciousness, like our awareness, our knowing mind. Does that sound familiar? Like my capacity to know and to be aware. It feels like that's me. So he says that the knowing mind also arises out of conditions and that we can become mindful of it. So he calls it cutting through the identification. Uh, There's a simple, like right now, we can practice it together. And this is this unraveling this paradox of being fully human and arising and being in the moment and at the same time knowing it's completely a a process that has no solidity to it. It's just happening and we can become conscious of it. It's, um, I find it quite um, wonderful to have a simple practice to cut through this kind of identification that, that blocks us from, from knowing the absolute, the unconditioned. So simply notice, like even right now, you hear a sound, my voice, and there's the knowing of it. And these come up in pairs. They arise together. Yet they're distinct, right? There's the sound or the sight and the knowing of it and they arise together. So our usual way is, I am feeling, I am thinking, right? I'm thinking, I'm hearing, I'm listening. We're we're thinking that way, conventionally. A meditative way is like a frame in which we can notice consciousness and its objects. The thought arises, the knowing of it, right? So... See if you can just recognize that and see if that might bring a little more freedom and less identification. So you can live fully who you are and still cultivate the freedom and the liberation. It's one process of practice. Again, there's very many, but I thought I would just briefly share it with you, and if it doesn't make sense, oh well. So I'm going to finish up with... um, a little bit about change, and then um, a poem. So, one of the reasons we ha- we can see that you know we are a process, and the neuroscientists show this as well, is that we are a, a changing, moving, living process. It's not like this solid thing, and so that's the paradox. We appear solid and unified, but actually we're constantly changing and moving. So the form and shape and intensity of any change that enters our life is our perception, our reactions to it. The change by its very nature can come to represent a complex kaleidoscope of forces, and that despite the complexity, the phenomenon of change does seem to have some underlying patterns. So we can look at at some of this ways that we, um, that kind of are, I don't want to say quite obstacles, but sort of are ways that um, 
we can we can accept the change and cultivate this receptive heart that's open to everything and anything. So we can look at our beliefs, like what we're believing, our values, our opinions, our views. We can challenge. So what, what supports change? The challenge that the old is contested by some way, a voice of the new. We can be open to the resistance that comes. How many of us love change? Only when it's something we want, right? But most of us tend to resist it. So um, we can be recognized when resistance and denial to the process of change, when we contest it. We can notice how we um, appraisal, how we begin to look at the new way of changing. Like when I was talking about realizing, oh, what if we're just receptive? What if we just open rather than try to make something happen? It was like something started to change. It was like an appraisal, like, oh, the new, we may start to shift our ground on a previous position even. And then a breakthrough may happen. We realize the benefit of the new way of seeing and being. And then consolidation, we start to accept it, we start to implement it, we maintain the change, and then integration. So this is how we open to change change in our way of being, change in our practice, change that supports a receptive heart. That, that we can go beyond maintenance to full synthesis and change, then change will become an integral part of our lives and assimilate it. So, and this is how it can, I'll just read this piece to go back to how we work together to transform society. So, individual and collective renewal is ongoing life-learning strategy that we're all involved in to some degree. Without constantly monitoring our situation, a fossilization process would start to occur that have implications for our growth and development. Sometimes we may be attempted to adopt the ostrich approach, right, burying our head in the sand. But my experience, this doesn't work to change. Change is always present, inviting us to listen, to pay attention. Our daily practice then should be one of questioning, probing, reflecting, attending to the new. One scientist says, it's a good morning exercise for a research scientist to discard a pet hypothesis every day before breakfast. It keeps him young. Okay. So, last uh, poem. So... Opening to anicca, impermanence, to selflessness, to um, living into the koan, those unanswerable questions, all support a receptive open heart that can respond more fully from wisdom and compassion in the moment. And this is another poem, I believe. This one is another Jane Hirschfield, but I'm not positive. It was like this. You were happy. It is Jane. It was like this. You were happy. It was like this. You were happy, and then you were sad. Then happy again, then not. It went on. You were innocent, or you were guilty. Actions were taken, or not. At times you spoke, at others you were silent. Mostly it seemed You were silent. What could you say? Now it's almost over. 
Like a lover, your life bends and kisses your life. It does not, it does not this, not in forgiveness between you. There is nothing to forgive. It does this, not in forgiveness between you. There's nothing to forgive. But the simple nod of a baker at the moment, he sees the bread is finished with transformation. Eating, too, is now the thing now for only others. It doesn't matter what they will make of you or your days. They will be wrong. They will miss the wrong woman. They will miss the wrong man or person. All the stories they tell will be tales of their own invention. Your story was this. You were happy, and then you were sad. You slept, you awakened. Sometimes you ate roasted chestnuts, and sometimes persimmons. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we have um, um, five to eight minutes for questions. I apologize to go on a bit. Um, anything someone wants to share or ask, and just know I have no answers. Here we go. <laughs> And then we'll finish up with dedicating the merit of our practice and a few announcements from Jean, our program host. Yes. Hi. Hi, me. I'm James. Hi, James. Um, so the Florida stuff and paradox stuff. Um, one thing that's been rolling around in my head a ton lately is um, in the middle of the hate, the guns, the cross-connection where we're actually in a moment we know what's happened, which is different from before where you'd have to wait until you got the morning paper or you heard the word. Um, statistically, still, it's the safest time to be alive. And so the paradox for me wasn't just that. I guess that's a huge one, really when we witness really big violence. But it's that there's a need for change, and it's clear. I mean, it's beca- it, if, if it wasn't clear before, it's one of those things that's becoming hard to deny. Yeah. So out of that, you um, know, ostriching and prayers and whatever the phrase is, not the time, not now, there's a groundswell, and, and so, so the change is coming out of the pain and the suffering and the fury is, is happening. It's, it's coming up out of it, you know, and we're coming together. I think those that are 
you know, awake and aware. So thank you for sharing that. Was there more? Well, just a little bit, which was yeah. that, like the gratefulness that comes from realizing in the middle of this that it's still one of the safest times to be alive in all of human history makes you not want to be an activist on some level. It's like, or or there's a problem with being grateful while I'm supposed to be doing something that takes like warrior spirit, right? But it's like, if we're not acting consciously, we're not being a very good warrior. And that takes gratitude, I think. That was the paradox for me. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, another fellow person? Hi. Your name? Yeah, I'm Anders. So I remember you were talking about the, I guess, the practice of trying to, like the subject-object distinction. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's the objective sensation, and there's how we interpret the sensation, like the knowing of it. And I was kind of wondering if you know any other practices on how to kind of be aware of the, the distinction between the knowing and just the, the sensation of being. Um, there's a lot of practices, actually. <laughs> Probably hit Mark up with that when he gets back. But there's a lot of practices, and also practices that don't seem to be directly. But, I mean, walking meditation you can watch. Anytime you can watch you can have be intimate with impermanence and see that there's no self there. There's so many practices. All our practices are actually pointing to that. And that um, um, I don't have my little laundry list in my head, but you know, there's these different factors of form, feeling, mental formation, these um, um, factors, and consciousness is one of them. And that's the hardest one to kind of bring awareness. Listen to Joseph Goldstein's talk on... Um, on uh, consciousness, it's his, I think it's his most latest talk on Dharma Seed, and I'm sorry I don't have the exact title of it. If you email me, um, I've got it on my laptop, and I plan to listen to it again and again. And it's not the interpretation, it's just the direct arising and passing. Like They're inseparable, but they're distinct. Again, that paradox. And But there all are all, so many practices... Um, open that door, I mean, of perception. Yeah, uh, maybe a couple more. Now other people can respond. I'm sorry to be so dominant. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate your talk. Uh, oh. It was uh, mm-hmm. very insightful for me to hear. And I appreciate that you opened those remarks about uh, what happened. Thank you. Um, my name is Mustafa, and I work in government relations. So yeah. I- Actually, was at a committee hearing in DC where that was being discussed. Oh, and, thank um, you. And I'm just wondering, um, how do you separate what happened personally, you know, and in, in this case it's done, but in my work I do immigration, from like the person experiencing it, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I understand the mm-hmm. compassion. I understand the equanimity, you know and the stillness, like I was doing walking meditation, but like, mm. there's also a level of like trauma that someone is yes. experiencing that you have to like reconcile with yeah. without yeah. being viewed as callous, you know? Thank you. Actually, I think you answered your question. Really, beautifully, beautifully. And that how you were walking 
walking meditation. I mean, how you hear the cries of the world, it's not a detached thing. I mean, you, it's like, this is me, this is my heart, and it is. It's extremely traumatizing. Uh, we had a, a, a dis, uh, uh, this uh, week with the colleagues I work with at the grief center. It's like, well, we need to talk about self-care, and I actually am going to do a follow-up email about how do we find our ways to release the trauma as we witness and bear witness and walk and feel it, because... Um, it's it's it is, and so I thank you for that, and that you were walking your meditation and feeling it, and 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 recognizing. So I think the paradox is: can we can, can we open to it all? You know, um, and know it's not separate, and and yet if we're lost, if we're completely lost in the suffering, and we cannot find some way to be present with it then we're re-traumatized. And we're traumatized along with the traumatized person. And that, that's what we're learning in, in treating trauma, too. And I have folks I work with with all kinds of trauma. And, and it's this, that actually their capacity to be present and have self-compassion and be with it and how all the ways it can move through the body and some of the other processes we have to allow for that healing um, in the brain and you know it's really um, wonderful because we're, we're actually learning how to be with present with it so but thank you and thank you for the work that you do and thank you for answering your questions <laughs> thank you um, one more here yeah. pardon are you content oh, oh good okay. but we still have a few minutes <laughs> Great, it'd be lovely to have your voice. And your name is? Eva. Eva. Uh, I just was lingering on what you were saying about um, the absolute and the relative, the paradox of holding both in your mind at the same time and how there are it feels that there are absolute truths, uh, but also Buddhism addresses that there is suffering, and, and there are relative truths. Um, and I find myself just squirming in the puzzle of when, in our political arena, truth becomes so relative. And, um, yeah, how to wrestle with conversations and ideas and... Uh, I, I feel like my heart drops mm-hmm. when that um, conversation stops because truth becomes so relative that communication ends. Yeah. So for me, yeah. this paradox in there, there's something I'm wrestling with that I, I don't seem to land in the okayness of paradox. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, something in there. Well, when I listen to you, what arises to my heart and mind, and maybe others can respond as well, um, now or after the talk. I mean, these are a lot of lived questions, and it drives me crazy. <laughs> I feel like I'm in an Orwellian nightmare. Um, you know, 1984, if anybody still remembers that one. Uh, um, but I think that, again, it's all taking place in the relative. It's all relative. 
It's a relative within the relative. And they're right. It's how to, the communication has stopped. And no one's really listening. And um, so, again, I have no answers. But I think how being with, knowing what that experience is, and then I think I try to do the best I can. Actually, someone told me what Joan Halifax said, um, who's a Zen teacher, who's a very mature teacher in the practice um, from Upaya. And she said that she, if you don't mind, I'll say the name, uh, Trump or 46, is it? Is that his number, President? 45. 45. 45. Please, not 46. 45. Um, That imagining him on his deathbed or imagining him as a four-year-old or imagining, like, any way to somehow work with those enemy and, you know, in our own hearts, you know, to have any compassion that this being is going to die, this person is going to have a deathbed. I'm not doing that practice yet, but when I heard it today, I thought, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And and also someone that had an NRA, um, a pro-NRA sticker where they were traveling and they saw it on their their stuff, but then they looked down and they, this is not my story, they saw that the man had one leg and they thought, okay, maybe there's something I don't know that I'm not seeing here. You know, like somehow, like we have to wake ourselves up out of a trance, otherwise we're lost too. You know, how to, but this is very challenging. You know, uh, so thank you for your asking, the, exploring the question. You know, because, yeah, what is truth? What it, yeah. So um, let's finish up. Let's dedicate the merit, and we'll let Jean have some announcements. Thank you. So thank, thank you. Gratitude to yourself for... Um, you know, coming out tonight in your own practice and your own ways of showing up in the world um, and that um, we can dedicate the benefits of our practice and our time together tonight to um, healing the world and to the benefit and awakening of all sentient beings everywhere in all places and times. Peace. True peace peace, and liberation. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.